Well, greetings and welcome to another episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm JP Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Mr. Paul Nicolini, here at Harbor City Capital. Today we have Laurent Gray on the line with us, and uh, whether you're listening to this in audio or seeing it in video format. And uh, Laurent is chairman and managing partner of Versailles Saint, is it Germain? Correct. What I'd like to do is get into some of your background. You know, we'll talk about your own personal experiences in the capital market, what you brought you here today. And then I'd like to also dive into some of the questions that we'll be using the responses to put together a book called Dealmakers, Dealbreakers. So we'll be talking about negotiation, the deal flow process, keeping your pipeline full, things like that as well. But why don't you take us back a little bit and talk to us about how you first got started in the capital markets and those early days. I actually became a banker by accident. Uh, we had a family business, uh, about 27 automobile dealerships across the country that my dad and his brother built, uh, Rolls-Royce, Bentley, Mercedes, you name it, they owned it. Um, certain partnerships, um, some, some were company-owned, and just relationships. It was just a very exciting time in the automobile business. Um, in 1979, uh, my dad became ill and decided that it was about time to exit. I was a very young guy, did not have the capabilities to you know, buy, buy the company away. Um, had no clue how to access money. I was very, very young. Um, I, did, I did help him, as it turns out, you know, um, liquidate the relationships as well as the dealerships, as well as the real estate, finally. But he basically said, you need to fend for yourself, you know, go and try to find something you want to have a passion with. Well, one of my childhood friends, best friends at the time, worked at Solomon Brothers. And he said, why don't you come work here? And I go, I don't even know, what, what do you do? I have no idea what you even do. He said, I'm an investment banker. Okay, okay, good. I still don't know what that means. And he said, just come in for an interview. And I, I did. And it turns out that they were looking for someone very, very senior. Anyway, fast forward. Um, I had left. My, my dad made a distribution. I decided to travel for a year. But I wanted this position so badly, I made it my, I made it my business. No matter where I was in the free world, at 7.30 in the morning, New York time. I was going to, I was going to call the gentleman that I interviewed with. It's just the name is Tony. I'm not going to give you his last name. And I, I would call him and say, "Hey, good morning, Tony. This is Laurent calling you from wherever." So fast forward, uh, I was I happened to be in London, and I was on my way home. I called him on a Friday, and this is about ten months out of traveling. I called him, same thing. Said, when can you start? And I, I said, you're kidding me. He goes, I've never met a guy so persistent in my life. You've got to be, you've got to come here. I said, I'm leaving today. And I flew home. I started on that Monday and I, I stayed there about three years. That was my introduction. I wait, I actually worked for the famed mortgage backed securities John Goodfriend, John Merriweather, uh, Strauss, Steve Baum legendary. Um, after that, 
Michael Lewis wrote a book about that whole episode on, on the trading floor of Solomon. I had been gone when he came in, but everything he wrote about was about half the truth of the things that went on there. It was just crazy. I then decided to, I, I then decided to start my own business. And I said, I love this business. I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm smart. I'm going to figure it out. And I did. And I, I, uh, I incorporated a, a name and started going to the people that I knew, met through my family business, attorneys, accountants, other investment bankers. By that time, I knew, I knew a lot of people down on the street. And uh, when you start off, it, you really start out on the outer ring of everything. No one will tell you that. But when you, if you're not connected with a Goldman, you're not connected with anybody, right? And there's everybody in the vertical in between. And I just started getting a lot of very difficult deals and making and creating a great reputation of the guy who got deals done. People would be taking bets that I couldn't get it done. And it was like one after another, one after another. And then, and, and by chance, you know, fast forward from that experience, I got introduced to a, uh, a very interesting deal called uh, Vermont Teddy Bear and brought it into one of the broker dealers that I knew, got that done. And then my neighbor um, happened to have owned Spanish broadcasting systems, the uh, Spanish radio, and probably was reluctant to share the infrastructure as to what was going on. But over flipping burgers at a pool party, he started to tell me about what was happening with the company. And um, fast forward on that, a, a year later, I closed um, not only the Vermont teddy bear deal, and then a month later, we closed on $110 million of a Series A um, to basically get them, they were upside down to get them in a, in a more favorable position, wound up doing five acquisitions for them and then uh, took them public at Lehman Brothers. I did not do the offering, but because of the warrants I had achieved in the deal, I, I was able to exercise the warrants. And from that, uh, he and I were on the cover of Spanish Broadcasting. And then, you know, basically, I always equate it to, you know, when you're an actor and you're struggling and you work in a restaurant and you get a part, and then all of a sudden that part, you get nominated for an Academy Award. That's how I felt. I went from really nothing to something. And from 1985 to 1994, it took that long in the process to really kind of hit my stride. And I haven't looked back since. A nine-year overnight success, right? <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting. We Early on, I mean, obviously it was tenacity got you that first job you were talking about. Persistence. Right, yeah. persistence yeah. and tenacity, just bulldog tenacity. But once you got into the game, those those first three years that you were there, um, what were some of the things that you learned? Some of, like being a babe in the woods, right? And just seeing a whole new industry from now the inside. 
in terms of the deal making process, you were there obviously when there were some of the extraordinary his, historic deal makers were doing some of their early projects um, that, that went on to become uh, famous. The, the mortgage backed securities at Solemn, I think, represented 67% of the revenue the years that I was there. It, it, it was the, the department that everybody was trying to get into, whether you are on the inside or the outside, you were trying to get into that department. And the biggest thing I learned, I think, uh, from coming from a family automotive business to one of the best investment banking bond houses on the street, probably not, probably in the world at that time, was to create a thick skin. Uh, coming from a family business, you, you develop a thick skin, but when you're there on the floor, you quickly had to embrace a lot of, let's just say not favorable words, and, and, and running around and doing the strangest things for partners. And I think I was, I think I was 25 years old, maybe 26. And um, getting there early, I'd be the first guy on the floor. I'd be the very, very last guy to leave. I think I had sleep deprivation for about three years. I'd probably get home at 12. I was up at four, took the train in. I was always there at 5.30, always. And I wanted to, I wanted to earn my way because I knew, just based on the guys that were on the floor, that it was always going to be an uphill battle. There was a lot of nepotism. A lot of guys that got in there were very fortunate. Uh, their fathers were traders or their uncles were traders or whatever whatever the situation was so i had to i had to really prove myself and 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 be persistent i think that's where when you look in the dictionary and you see the word persistency my my face is right next to it i'm the most persistent person i know and that's the driver that's the driver that i tell this to everybody if you're going, whatever you're going to do, if you're going to do something, have a goal, be persistent, and don't give up. Don't let people get in your head, negativity. Don't let their fear of fear create a negativity in your head. And because you'll, what will happen is you will look back and you'll, you'll be angry that you didn't listen to your inner self. You need to have a self-driver. And I, I live by that. I'm 65 years old. I live by that every single day. Never stop. Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to, you talk about mindset, having that right mental attitude and not letting other people infect or affect how you feel about the deals as well. Um, we have more questions for you, but before we do, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our previous episodes, our archives, as well as subscribe and follow us for future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com, thedealflowshow.com. Laurent, we really appreciate you, uh, you giving us those advice and that, those tips about being persistent and what it takes to really, really uh, be successful in the business. Bring us now up to date. What do you see hot in the capital markets today? Well, I think um, it's a very unique time, you know, not, notwithstanding uh, the, the virus. And I'm, what we are seeing 
Uh, Versailles is, we are, we are essentially pure investment bankers, generalists in all sectors with the exception of restaurants and cannabis. Uh, restaurants, I have no idea how to you know, invest in a restaurant. We go to restaurants and cannabis only because we, we don't understand the federal laws and how they may impact the overlay of state by state. So we, for now, we have stayed away from that. We're seeing a lot of distressed debt. Um, you can imagine uh, what's been happening for the last six or seven months, that companies are struggling, their balance sheet is struggling. So we're, we're doing a lot of re enhancement value, either helping them restructure their debt and adding some additional equity to make their balance sheet stronger. Um, we typically are turnaround um, in, in, in the manner that trying to help companies that in March or late February, they were on a path to go through their goals, whether they were uh, acquiring other companies or putting on human capital. And then that, that tremendous bump in the road. And it was a, it became a very slow drip, essentially, that people were starting to back away from either ordering or um, people couldn't get any further equipment for their for their operations, their manufacturing. It was just a series of things. So from from that perspective, it's that um, we we actually is interestingly enough, we through another business and another partner. We do a real estate financing. We just, we're one of the first guys in New York City to get a $47 million construction loan for a, a Hilton hotel down on uh, 38th Street. I think it's the first in probably three to four months that anybody has ever put that together. So we're very proud of that. But hotels in itself are taking a serious bump. And I, I tell people all the time, you know, if you have or you have a group that has the capital to make an acquisition in, in the hotel sector, they're trading 50 to 60 percent below market. And if you have the capital to withstand and hold until this curve comes back, whether it's one year or two years or three years, your trade is going to be a very, very exciting trade at the end of the day. So those are those are just a couple of things you know there is a there's a multitude of things that that are out there that we are we are seeing we're active in uh, but those are those are a couple for now what is your deal process i mean when you are preparing to go to the table looking at a new project a new opportunity can you walk us through the mindset and maybe some of the thought process yeah it's uh, it's it's pretty much the same thing every time uh, an opportunity comes to us we have uh, we have 14 partners. We'll have a conversation about the opportunity, where it came from, the viability of that source, you know, um, how close they are to the deal. We'll internalize it. We'll take a read, and then one of my partners, who's my longest partner, been with me over 20 years, he'll start to do the due diligence on the company. To see what see what the numbers look like. See how either how good they are, how bad they are, and then we we really spend a lot of time in having conversations with the management. 
from my perspective, I always look at managing expectations. I want to know how I can manage them and the process, and I want them to understand how they can manage the expectations to me and the company. And basically, it's it's from it's those beginning points that create the start of the beginning of a deal process. Obviously, not every deal works out, right? Um, you have the ones that whether they fall apart for the wrong, you know, for the wrong people or the wrong, the numbers don't make sense, et cetera. What are the deal breakers for you when you're looking at something you're like, other than it's cannabis or it's a restaurant, what are the non-starters for you as you, if you see those red flags start to pop up? Well, it's, it's always management, right? If you, if you can't, in those conversations, we may spend a month, sometimes two months. Um, perfect example, I've been dealing with this one group for about six months, trying to get this deal, trying to get this deal moving. It's in the animation space and we happen to really, really like it, but that's, it becomes another story, maybe another time. Uh, but it, it's, it's about the management. You have to understand the mindset of what you're dealing with on the other side of the table. Now, having said that, in the past, we'd go meet the client. So the only basis you now have is a Zoom call trying to get a body language and an understanding of what is going on right <clears throat> and you and you have you have as as many conversations as you can to get a good feel of the management the ceo the chairman his managers around him and 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 it's it's got to feel right you, they have to understand our process we have to understand their desires if we feel if we feel that their expectations are way beyond the pale and we cannot manage that expectation, we will take a pass no, no matter how good the opportunity will be because it's one of those things you're never going to make them happy. And, and if you go in knowing that, it's just go, it, it will be torture. I think that's, pretty, that's, that's a very basic level when when management when the, their management and our team there's harmony it's a good conversation flow their deal makes sense you do the due diligence on the bodies on the principles there there's nothing nothing lurks out that that's strange where you're going to sprint away and then then you're good to go you know? but yeah i would say that for the most part you you have to be able to get along with the principals on the other side. Same thing with us. You'll be in bed with them in some cases for a year, and it's day in and day out. You're you're dealing with them in some form or fashion every day, sometimes seven days. You mentioned before that um, uh, Versailles Saint Germain. You guys are a more traditional investment banking firm. What's your take on on Regulation A? Funny you should mention that, um, and I'm I'm actually glad you mentioned that. I was hired to do a reggae deal um, by a guy that I have known for 15 years. Just happened to call him out of the blue. He was in bed with this firm. I'm not going to mention any names for liability purposes. I, I didn't agree with that structure at all. I felt that 
well, well, first, when he told me what they were doing, I did my research. I came back to him and I said, you know, this is not for me. I'm not comfortable with it. And um, if you want me to do a traditional raise for you while you're doing the reggae, I will. I'll go parallel paths. You do that. I'll do this. And um, hopefully it should work. The, the long and short of it is that it didn't work. I got fired from the assignment um, because the guy who was running the reggae was just a control freak. And he wanted to have all that activity flow going to him. Meanwhile, we brought um, a, a considerable amount of opportunities for investment as a straight investment banking opportunity. And it's not the first time I got fired. You know, it's a badge of honor, right? It's hard to get fired. So when you get fired, you wear it and it's, it's fine. But the, the fast forward to this whole thing is that they're struggling. I know they're probably kicking themselves in the, in the head of, of the why. Why did we do that? And they're not any better off than they were. And they didn't let the process on the banking go, go far enough down the road in order for it to pay off. And I think it would have. I, I just think it would have. It would have worked. I am very, very negative on reggae. I'm sorry to say that. Well, so here's, it's interesting to hear you say that, and, and I didn't know what your feelings were on that, but there's a lot that's been going on. Obviously, with the Dillflow show, with season one, which we're filming, we'll have somewhere around, I want to say, 34 episodes. I could be wrong, but I'd say 10 plus, we've had this conversation come up about reggae. Yeah. Almost all cases, very positive, glowing, and this comes from everybody from the legal side, the teams, to issuers who are raising, founders, issuers that are raising the money, to capital raisers and people who run fintech. reggae, yeah, fintech, fintech platforms and things like that. It's nice to hear another perspective. And what's interesting is that reggae, which I, I have my own opinion about it, we can talk about that at some point, but reggae has democratized in many ways the capital raising process not not a, a rock throwing at you or the industry, but it's taken some of the teeth off of the the good old boys traditional. investment traditional investment bankers yep. and thrown it over to another side. The other thing is that it's obviously opened up investment raise, raising or capital raising to mom and pop, not just mom and pop accredited investors or but literally grandma can get out her checkbook and write a check. And I just read an article about a real estate fund, two, uh, two rounds of a fund, two different funds, but by the same sponsor, both run on Reg A. One of the investors came in at the minimum $5,000 on, on two different funds, turned right around and filed a class action lawsuit um, alleging several things, among which was self-dealing, and misrepresentation, et cetera, which we know is being driven by an attorney. And I'm not siding on either one, but it does open up 
right. an entirely new set of problems. So it, it, while it opens up this massive capital resource out there that's been virtually untapped by anyone outside of the public markets, it also, I think, is creating its own set of problems. We're intending here at the DealFlow Show team and our team here at Harbor City Capital to do a special episode or roundtable on Reg A. And if you're game, and don't mind being maybe the, the one negative guy at the table, we might consider having you come back in and present sure. your side of the case. Absolutely. I think that would be very interesting to talk about the controversial components of Reg A and where it works, where it doesn't, what the challenges are. I just read, uh, one of my colleagues was posting, I think it was in a LinkedIn group, was saying that the SEC has literally organized a specific task force to look into Reg A and the issues regarding what's going on within Reg A. So they're, they're definitely being examined under a microscope. We saw it happen with the ICOs, the tokenized offerings yep. a couple of three years ago. Yep. Now I think we're gonna see it with Reg A's. My suspicion is the next one will be SPACs. Right. So whatever the sexy thing of the week is, that's the next target for, for the, the three letter agencies. Yeah, you know, the, it's funny that you say that. Um, so let's, for a second, just talk about talk about it a little bit further. You, you have the companies that are doing the formation of the reggae. They're, they're, they're the organizer, whatever. You have the, you have the law firms that are doing it, the, the accounting firms, and the company looking for the money. So, you know, so you, you have that, that group, whatever the group is. And it just, it, it just appeared to me, and I, I, of course, this is a single focused, only one example. I only did one, um, and I'm not, back, I'm not backpedaling because I'm still a non-believer, right? But it seems to be so many people that are in the pie that have to get paid by the, by the principal who's looking to access this reggae money. So he pays, you know, twenty five thousand dollars to the to the company that is setting the process. Then he's got to pay the legal. Then you have to have a marketing company, and it just seems to be a lot, just a lot of a lot of a lot to even to break even. You're probably down five hundred thousand on this one particular deal. I think it was. 750 that he was down and he was struggling he was getting his he was going to his investors to plug the holes right at the same time being fair i have heard of a real estate firm um that raised 500 million on reggae so go figure you know so if if maybe if they're done right it's like everything else. If, if you have the right people in the process from A to Z and no one is being greedy, maybe, maybe it happens. But I'm, I'm happy to jump in and articulate my feelings um, and concerns. You know, it, it's the mom and pop that, that are jumping in, looking to access some appreciation on their uh, on their dollars, right? You know, when to do when do those dollars pay off? Pay off, and how are they protected? 
and, and that's that's my that's my issue. I want to talk a little bit about the appetite for public markets the traditional IPOs in a moment. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives, our previous episodes, as well as subscribe and follow us for future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com, thedealflowshow.com. So, Laurent Gray, we've got you on the show today. Investment banker, uh, I'm going to call you old school investment banker, right? So you sit in your lane. You know exactly where your lane is. I was going to say, and too, that he might he might be more interested in, in reggae, the music genre. <laughs> <laughs> Would you stop it? Sorry. <laughs> so, so here's the, um, uh, here's, here's the question. We've seen um, pretty healthy IPO, uh, obviously, COVID affected some things, but going into it and now, now coming out of it, some pretty interesting things <laughs> happening. Where, where do you see the, the landscape over the next 12 to 24 months in the IPO market? Yeah, it's funny. Um, we do not do anything in the public market at all. Uh, we, have, we have stayed away from that. I have stayed away from that my entire life. Uh, even, even when we did Spanish broadcasting, that was teed off a long time ago and uh, i had we had nothing my company had nothing to do with it we just had the benefit of having the warrants that that came back to us which is great um i am you know i i i, I talk to my clients all the time you know when they say do you think we should go public do you think this do you think that i was representing i'm now back representing the same company they told me they were going to back into a shell. And I've heard, you know, over 30 years, nightmare stories about shells and how they work and how they don't work. And you hear more, so you hear more stories about how they didn't work. And I, and this guy happened to be one of my closest friends. And I said, you know, John, I think it's a bad idea. I, I don't know why you're doing it. Um, there's gotta be a better way to access capital. Well, they did it. Now, four years later, we, we Versailles, are back engaging with them. You know, we, they, we have taken them out of the shell. We've taken them private. And now we're going to have a, a more traditional family office, successful round, you know, a series A that, that gets them gets them uh, to where they should have been from 2015. So long-winded, um, we don't play in that space. You know, when you go public, you, the underwriting, the due diligence, all the investigations is a nightmare. Plus it's expensive and it's expensive to stay public. Now it's for a lot of people, it, it's just not for, it's not for our practice. We're more comfortable and the and the private private sector um, enjoy it, love it better, easier for us, and that's where we that's sort of where we sit. A lot of companies go public um, for the exit strategy. So what 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 do you guys do at your firm? Um, we will put them in a position for a uh, a sell, a merger, an acquisition. Um, the the benefits the benefits for that are multi tiered. Uh, one, they'll get they'll get their money when you sell the company. If it's a if it's a hundred percent sale, you close. You have all your capital. 
if it's a tail, you, you're staying in there for a number of years as a consultant, you'll get paid out. It's, I think it's cleaner. It's for, in my opinion, it's a cleaner way for companies to exit. Um, you just sell, you sell the company that falls into our M&A side of the business. And we're, ha we're happy. We love that side. We love consulting companies either on the buy side or the sell side. When you're coaching a, a founder or a team like that on toward an exit through an acquisition, what what are you saying to them? How are you preparing them to go to the deal table? What are the things you're telling them to look for, watch for, be prepared for? Well, in everything else, it starts with greed. If you if you are too greedy, you will get beat up at the table always. Then the valuation, of course, is always you know. The first question is, what's my valuation? What's my valuation? And my philosophy about valuations is you take a dartboard, you draw a whole bunch of numbers on it, and you give anybody darts and let them throw it. Because we tell our clients all the time, it's not what, it's not what we think, and it's not what you think. It's what the money is buying or investing their dollars into. But you, you, you want to, for the most part, you guide them into a, you know, a very successful close, making sure that they understand that the dollars that are, that are being offered is fair. No one is going to overpay, although things do get overpaid for. And if, they're, if it's a clean deal, then it's just clean and, and they should be prepared for the due diligence process, which can take months to get to a closing table. If in fact that the, some of the management are staying behind uh, as a, a what they call an earnout, then there are covenants in those contracts, and we're very anal making sure that the law firms are are really going through the covenants with a fine tooth comb. But that's pretty much that's that's where it begins. You mentioned the hotel or uh, hospitality industry having severely under priced opportunities right now, what you feel like for the future, uh, an opportunity there to, to buy in as long as you can sustain the operation over the, the gap. Um, any other undervalued or maybe un, unrealized opportunities that you're seeing out there in the market that people should be paying attention to? Real estate in general is taking a hit. I think the city is down like 30%, maybe 35%. When you have a down market or you have a, when you have a pandemic, right? This is, this is an oddity in, in the capital markets and the marketplace for everybody. There are a lot of people generating a lot of wealth off the pain and suffering of what's going on, right? But there are groups out there that are, that are buying what was a good note whether a developer is has an apartment complex and is now struggling to pay the banks, whether it be investment banks or banks, um, they're having issues. So there are there are a lot of companies out there that are now buying distressed notes. And so in the real estate sector, there's a tremendous buying opportunity, both in the hotel space, the commercial space, medical space, and uh, uh, apartment space. Uh, student housing is interesting as well. There are a couple of companies out there that were that we know of. We're, we're not participating in it. That are taking the opportunity to either 
build new housing or come in and take over the housing, the management side of it, and just have it kind of bell curve out. Are you all involved in facilitating any of this distressed note acquisition? We are not on my side, but uh, my real estate partner that, that has a family office, they are. Not for any other reason. It's just we're not seeing, we're not seeing, Versailles is not seeing that. Uh, they are seeing that. They're primarily real estate, um, real estate opportunistic family office. They own five hotels, a multitude of different family, um, sorry, not family, multifamily uh, opportunities that they're in. So it's more their core. I just do real estate financing with him on opportunities, preferably hotels. Uh, I happen to love the hotel space very, very much. Uh, who would you like to reach out to uh, with regard to our audience or our, our guest? You know, I saw, I saw that in the questionnaire and I was like, that's, that, that's an interesting question. You know, it's, you know, we're always looking for opportunities, always going to be. Uh, we're always looking for senior bankers that are looking to join our platform. You know, we have, uh, we have a group out in San Diego, uh, Vermont, uh, five in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, two in Pennsylvania. I'm in, I'm in New York City. So I think we, we offer a very interesting dynamics of our own deal flow, as well as the, the ability to execute the deal flow. We deal primarily with family offices uh, for the most case until they get up to around 100 million and then it's private equity and and in some rare cases it's hedge funds uh, we generally will not get an opportunity you know over 200 million if they're coming to me frankly why are they coming to me it, it wouldn't make any sense that generally means that they've gone to everybody else and everyone else said no and somehow some way they made it here and we're saying no too so it doesn't matter what's the easiest way for someone to reach out to you linkedin email phone email it's uh l r s gray g-r-a-y 007 the james bond reference at gmail.com Fantastic. Laurent, we appreciate you being on the show. Listen um, to our guest. If you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show and you think, hey, I know a good guest or hey, maybe I'd be a good guest, go to thedealflowshow.com and you can apply to be a guest or suggest a guest to us. If you're watching or listening to the show, please share it. We have a lot of people in the capital markets, the investment space, um, all across the spectrum from service providers and on broker dealers, RIAs, individuals that are really getting excited about the show. And if you know people like that, be sure to share it out to other people. On behalf of myself, JP Maroney, my partner here in crime, Mr. Paul Nicolini. Laurent, thank you so much for coming on the show. And on behalf of the Deal Flow Show team and Harvard City Capital, we'll see you in another episode of the Deal Flow Show very soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, Laurent. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe. 